the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. Today, we have Terry Polish, the Global Engineering Advisor from Carbo Ceramics, on with us. We're going to talk about propens and all kinds of other production enhancement tools and services and how they fit into the oil and gas sector. The show is brought to you by Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. Terry, thank you. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, I really appreciate the appreciate the time. Now, you are in Houston, is that correct? Actually, I'm in Dallas, although I spend a lot of time in Houston. So, oh, okay. You might think of me as being in Houston as often as I'm there. Well, I was going to ask you about the Astros game over the weekend if you if you were watching that, but if you're in Dallas, maybe well, that's not. No, I watched. I watched it actually. I'm a Cardinal fan. Once the Cardinals were out of it, I became an Astros fan. So. Oh, good, good. Okay. Well, and I'm go not really Altuve. a big. Yeah, go Altuve. That's right. I'm not a big baseball fan, but my wife is, so I watch. I watch when she does. So it was. It was just a an awesome, awesome game. Oh, it was crazy. As long as you know the, the right team won that game, so agreed. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm with you on that one. So Terry, like I already said earlier, you are the global engineering advisor for Carbo Ceramics. I'm sure there's a lot that goes into that, a lot that uh, we can go off on many different ways. But how about you just give us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to where you are today? Okay, well, I've been in, in the industry over 35 years. Actually, I graduated with a petroleum engineering degree from University of Missouri Rolla. It's now Missouri S&T. So I grew up in St. Louis and wasn't really very close to the oil industry. I'm not really sure how I ended up in it, but it's been a good run. I actually, out of college, went to Alaska. I worked for Arco Alaska for 10 years. Did everything from reservoir to operations engineering. Did a fair amount of frack work then. That's kind of where I really got involved with hydraulic fracture design and prop and selection and a lot of that kind of work. And then I moved in 96, I moved to Dallas or Richardson here with Arco as well. I was sort of worked on their Road of Aguil project in Algeria. So I was a production advisor. So I did a lot of advising on production related topics to our Sonatrack partners. Again, did a lot of, did a little bit of uh, hydraulic fracture design there. And in the 2000, BP bought us and I didn't really want to move. So as hard as it was to leave my colleagues at Arco and then became BP, I, I decided to do something I'd always had a passion for actually which I don't know if you knew in my bio, and that was to, I taught high school math for four years, something I'd always wanted to do. And I did that. And in 2004, the current CEO of Carbo Ceramics, who I'd actually been doing some consulting work in the summers for him, and he and I had worked together at Arco, and he'd asked me if I'd want to come to Carbo and educate people on propent and connectivity and all that kind of stuff. And so that's really what brought me here. So I've been here 15 years and Kind of done a little bit of everything. When it, really, what I would say is I'm kind of the 
you know, since I work for an operator and I actually did frack designs for a living on the operator side, my job really is to interface with clients and users, you know, kind of talk to them a little bit about what's best for their needs. One of the hooks I got from Mark was just that I got to do some teaching. I just got to teach engineers who didn't ask me when they'd ever need to know this stuff. (laughs) So so that was a nice change. But anyways, that's kind of what I do. I I also advise our R&D department. So I kind of bring an an operation sanity to R&D so they don't go too far off on any tangent that doesn't seem workable. You know, work with clients to maybe come up with some new ideas and write a few SB papers. I'm also pretty involved with SBE. I am currently the, on the board of directors as a completions technical director with that's just started my three-year term. So that gives me a little broader perspective on the industry too, from a completion standpoint. So yeah, that's, that's kind of me. No, that's a, that's a very interesting background. Something we talk about here on the, on the podcast network. I don't, I'm not sure if you listen to many of the other shows, but a lot of what we do like to focus on is, is how can we get more people into the industry? How can we maybe shift the perspective of the industry in a little more positive manner. And you being a school teacher for a period of your career, that that's very interesting. Do you, do you see anything that we maybe as an industry could do differently to maybe get some students in here? And I, I'm throwing this question at you totally off the cuff, obviously, right? But do you have any thoughts there? You know, that's a good question. It's actually something we're kind of wrestling with on the SP board. But one of the things that I guess... I mean, we talk about all the time as an industry about how we need to be more vocal, but but I don't I don't know that you can be any more have any more positive impact than just in your day to day life. I mean, you know, we interface with a lot in our everyday lives. I mean, unless I guess you live in Houston, but you know, you probably interface with a lot of people that aren't in the oil and gas industry, and they have no idea what we do. And I, I'll tell you, what, it was a really good example. Look at what happened in Colorado and, you know, all the the ballot initiatives that were going on about a year ago. And there were some pretty prominent oil industry people up there who just said, look, we're going to go to this at the grassroots level. And we're going to tell our friends and neighbors and and the servers at our restaurants we go to and the gas station attendants and everybody, you know, what it is we do and why, you know, why it's important to society and, you know, kind of put it in personal terms, you know, put a face to the industry, if you will, as opposed to, you know, what we see on the news and everything. To me, it's the grassroots is where it's going to start. But but anyways, yeah, that's something it's, it's an interesting topic and it's not getting any easier. Certainly. No, there's a lot of other industries that are starting to grow and take off and pull pull people in many different directions and starting to pay fairly competitively. I mean, the oil and gas sector has kind of always been able to stand out with higher pay, higher overall right. benefits to their employees. But, you know, there are some other industries starting to catch up. I th- well, and, and, and to me, the other problem we have is, I mean, just let's face it. I mean, of course, just getting kids into STEM programs is hard enough. But then when you get them in, you know, they're being bombarded with environmental and, and climate and everything else. And I mean, those are all super important to us. But we, but, but they think of us as, well, we don't want to go work for you guys. And in that compound that with people thinking, well, you know, the end is near. I don't think people realize oil and gas is going to be around for a long, long time. And actually, you know, the natural gas is a solution to the climate problem, not not the bad part of it. So it's it's the message. And and again, it's it's a grassroots message. It's something that we all need to be a part of in order to make it make it happen. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I think that's a great a great perspective and a great plan, and and certainly something we could all. We can all do, right? You don't have to do anything outside of just day-to-day talking to your neighbors, talking to the people around you and spreading the good word of 
of what we do every day. Exactly. So you have been in the industry, you said, over 30 years, right? Yep. And today, I know what we want to kind of talk about is propens and how that kind of fits into both carbo and the oil and gas onshore, offshore sectors today. Could you run us through just real quick, any anybody that might not be sure what propens are and how those work, just kind of what that fits into the industry? Yeah, well, I mean, in a, in a nutshell, of course, we hydro- when we hydraulically fracture a well, we're pumping fluids down the well at a high rate of pressure, and we're cracking the rock. And when we crack the rock, if we stop pumping, the rock closes. And so we need something to prop open the rock so that when we shut down, we now have a high conductivity or a high flow capacity, you know, bringing the reservoir back to the to the to well bore. And you know, we're pretty original people in this industry. We we call that that product to prop open a fracture prop it, and it you know it comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes and strengths, anywhere from you know low quality regional sands all the way up to a high quality you know well made bauxite based prop of some sort. So that's. It's pretty simple. I mean, I think of it this way. I think of it as a highway, right? You, you, if you're from Houston, you know, I-10, it's pretty important to Katy and to all the surrounding areas that I-10 is, I don't know, six lanes wide now on both sides or something. But yeah. that's essentially what you're doing. If, if we didn't have those, those highways, all you'd have is everybody trying to drive directly downtown and it would, it would be mass hysteria. And so you, you need the profit to create those, those highways. That's a great analogy. I, certainly a, a good way to visualize what's going on down there, you know, because we're doing this from thousands and thousands of feet away, right? Underneath all the rock and, and all the earth. So we've got the, the liquids, the propens, you know, some other chemicals and different things that get pushed down well bore. They hold those, those cracks open. Now, I know I do a lot of stuff on land. You know, my, my day-to-day job is hauling crude oil. So I've seen a lot of issues where the sand comes back out and it comes back out of the wellbore. And that's, from your explanation, that's going to close the highway, right? So that's got to be a big issue for all production scenarios. Yeah, it, it is. You know, you obviously, you, you put it in the, the fractures. You don't want to have to deal with it. You, first of all, you want it to help you. So you want to leave it in there. But you also don't want to deal with it when it comes back out. So you spend a lot of money to do that, and you know we're we're still you know struggling with ways to, to best keep it in the in the well or in the fractures. You know, a, a typical way would be put resin coating on a prop and a curable resin coating on. You know, particularly the product that you know in in conventional wells you might put it in the product that is last into the well board to kind of lock that last prop in place. You know, we're in the unconventionals, I know we're talking offshore here, but in the unconventionals, it's a little more problematic because you're, you know, which propin is actually going in and near the well bore first is a real big question mark. And, you know, are you able to actually, if you put resin coating on it, can you actually lock it all in place without putting it on every grain, which becomes extremely expensive? The other interesting thing is, you know, I think sometimes we forget about the fact that it's the pressure drop there. And it's, if we can lower that pressure drop near the well bore, we might be able to keep more of that propping in place. So, you know, a higher conductivity propping near the well bore might help do that. I've seen that work, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, certainly we want to keep all of it in the, the fracture if we possibly can. So one of the, th- one of the questions I had looking at this interview and this discussion is, do propens get mixed into a certain well? Do you use just sand? Do you use just ceramics? Like, 
How does that come to play generally? Well, that's a that's a good question. Like a secret sauce? No, 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 like no. Everybody, no, I wouldn't say it's a secret sauce. It's just it's <laughs> highly. It, you know, I bet you just about eighty percent of the questions you ask me, I'll say it depends. But you know, when you're as an engineer, you're trying to if you could sprinkle it all where you'd like it, you know, without having to worry about how you get it there, you'd, you'd like, you'd like to think of your fracture network. You'd like to have the, the lowest conductivity, if you will, product furthest away from the wellbore because you don't need it as much out there. Think of it as, you know, think of that highway 10 leaving downtown Houston. Where do you have the highest, the most lanes are nearest downtown but as you keep working right. your way out, you can get fewer and fewer lanes. And, you know, eventually you might be down to a two-lane highway and stuff like that. What's well, the same thing in a fracture? You'd like to have the highest conductivity nearest the wellbore because that's where you have the most pressure drop, the most velocity. So you'd like to have, you know, the highest conductivity you can put in there is going to be some sort of a, a ceramic propent, probably a lightweight ceramic near the wellbore, maybe large size. But then as you work your way back, you can probably afford to, you know, taper off into something that, you know, you could go like on land. We, we certainly see in the Northeast places where people put our cryptosphere near the wellbore and at the end and they put uh, 4070 sand out at the tip. And the reason you do that is because it's all cost benefit, right? I mean, you go from right. sand to resin coated sand to ceramic, it costs more. So you're trying to put the you know, maximize the amount of conductivity you need with the cost. Now, offshore, offshore tends to be a little bit different than animal. You know, you're dealing with wells that are going to make tens of thousands of barrels a day in many cases. You need those wells to last 20, 30, 40 years. And so in that case, you're probably going to go more durable and probably go ceramic the whole way. And where you may do mix, and again, I want to be clear, when I talk about mixing, it's not physically mixing more than one propent in a, in a bucket and then putting it in the well. It's, it's pumping one propent and then another propent after it. And in that case, you know, you might find people who are, are going to pump, say, a 30-50 first and then follow that by a 20-40, a larger size, or a 16-20. Again, trying to get the high conductivity near the well bore. But, but then, I, I hate to complicate this, the other issue you've got offshore <laughs> is you're dealing with set amount of room and a set amount of room on your boat. And so you can't afford to inventory a whole bunch of different sizes of profit. You'd kind of like to go out there with all one size. So then you may just kind of design for the, the highest conductivity profit to start with and then just use it for the whole job. So it really is a kind of depends on the application. But I would say most of the time offshore, you see a single mesh size pump, typically ceramic. You're also having the size for gravel pack in that situation as well. Okay. And I'm very new to the whole production side of, of the industry. I've been transportation and logistics. And once it's coming out of the ground, that's that's where I've been living for the last 10 years sure. myself. So I'll ask this question. is Would you use propens in just a conventional well or would was it only going to be in a hydraulically fractured well? Just fractured, right? Yes. So uh, let's just kind of talk a little nomenclature here so we don't get confused. When we talk conventional and unconventional in our industry, we typically mean conventional meaning permeabilities that are higher 
And, you know, they could be vertical wells. They could still be horizontal wells. Like stick a straw in the ground and just... Well, yeah. And I mean, so so let's go to the Middle East. So, or even in a lot of Gulf of Mexico wells, you don't need propping in those wells. Or they, they don't, it's not economic to do that. They don't need to hydraulically fracture them. But you can't put propping in a well without hydraulic fracturing. So going to that part of the question, but, gotcha, okay. you know, unconventional would be we when we think of our horizontal wells with multi-stage hydraulic fracture treatments that are super low permeability, that in those wells, if you don't hydraulically fracture them, you won't produce anything. You know, so that's just to kind of put a bow on this. What we're doing in the Gulf of Mexico in many cases is, is I'm going to call it in between. So okay. in the Gulf of Mexico, in some wells, they would produce without a hydraulic fracture treatment. They would have enough permeability and enough pressure to produce, but they wouldn't produce for very long. And they may produce at low rates such that by the time you get all the oil out, or I say all, but I mean all the recoverable, it would be 20 or 30 years. Whereas if I could hydraulically fracture this with and put profit in there, I can move all that stuff out from 20 years from now into, say, the next 10 years, and I get more production now, which, of course, time, value, money makes you pay out your asset a lot quicker. So that's really where the hydraulic fracture treatments come in in, in kind of a high-perm conventional application. And that makes a lot of sense. Some of the other discussions I've had, they made the analogy of on land, it's like it's like ants. You know, there's there's more ants in total than say elephants on the face of the earth and on on land we're we're finding the ants we're we're drilling all these wells we're grabbing those those little pockets offshore we're hunting elephants you know we're we're going to grab those giant pockets and you're going to put way fewer wells in the surface but you're going to have the production far greater out of that single location well yeah but you know keep in mind you know offshore you're still talking about in most cases millions and billions of barrels of oil in place but you might recover with a, with you know standard hydraulic fracture treatments maybe with some water flood in there you know i'm going to just say 30 to 50 percent probably push to 30 to 40 of the recoverable whereas on land in a again when i say on land meaning in our unconventionals where you have nano Darcy perm, super low permeability rock, you're going to, yeah. you're going to get less than 10% of the recovery. And, and, you know, that's why you're drilling mile long laterals and putting 40 and 50 fracks in them. I mean, you're, it's like drilling 50, you know, vertical wells and putting small fracks in all these wells, you're doing it in a big horizontal. And so you have to put it all together and it's such low permeability. If you don't frack them, they don't flow. In fact, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we used to, we, we didn't even develop these. We, we, we know where this is all located because we used to drill through it all the time. We would just say, hey, this is a shale. It doesn't produce. And then George Mitchell and several others back in the Barnett days in the early 2000s said, hey, what if we put a horizontal well in here and hydraulically fracture 50 times? Can we make a well out of it? So that's the difference. And that they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> the rest <laughs> is history, as they say. Yeah. yeah. So... That's a lot of information about propens, and, and <laughs> I know I'm learning a lot, and that's great. Uh, what are some of the the key aspects of of that of that section of the production cycle, or you know, of propens, if you will, that Carbo specializes in or is is really focused on? Well, I mean, we sell all you know, we sell both sand and ceramic, but we are really a ceramic propen company. We sell some sand. We sell typically high end material. 
So we don't, you know, we're, we're, so even the sand we sell is a good quality Northern white. We, we sell it in select markets, but really our wheelhouse is ceramic and ceramic technologies. So we're talking about the high end, high rate, high performance type well. So that's why you see a lot of our products in the Gulf of Mexico in the offshore, excuse me, Gulf of Mexico, or perhaps as a tail end in some of the Northeast wells where we want to get some high connectivity in the Utica near the well bore. So, you know, that's, that's really where a lot of our, our products are going now is in, well, a lot of times it'll be in an oil play as well, where you have high viscosity fluids, but then we have kind of a, that's kind of our, I'll call it our base ceramic line. Plus we have our technology products where we, we either improve the ceramic profit or we do we use the ceramic profit for something other than just propping open, open the rock. So Cryptosphere is kind of our flagship product we developed about five years ago in, in response to a Gulf of Mexico operator who was developing the lower tertiary, which is 20,000 plus feet below the mud line in deep water. So it's 30,000 feet deep. They recognize that the standard ceramic profit on the market wasn't going to be able to perform at these high stresses, high drawdowns. And so we developed Cryptosphere, which is an advanced ceramic that basically performs at a higher level. So that's that's one of the big workhorses in the offshore. But then these technology products, you know, I can, for example, ceramic propens, and I can put porosity in it, and I can infuse it with production chemicals. So for example, scale inhibitor, put a membrane, a semi-permeable membrane on the outside, and then we replace 5, 10, 20% of the profit pack that we're pumping with the scale guard. And now I've got scale inhibitor in place. When water's coming past it, it picks up scale inhibitor, and now it inhibits the whole system. So I can, I can essentially inoculate the well from the fracture all the way through the production system. No need for control lines and squeezes and things like that. So that's a big, one of the big, products we have both land and offshore and another one is fusion which is our advanced resin coating so most resin coating we've talked about it earlier about locking the propin in place most of those systems basically you need to put pressure on the propin in order to make it cure so it goes in tacky and then it goes into the fracture when the frac closes on it it, it bonds you know they, they cure together and now that propin won't move well there are some wells in the offshore that have and you know annular gravel packs in addition to the frack. And if you're going to inject on those and you just put regular propin in there, it's going to, you're going to flush all that propin away and you need something that will bond in the fracture, but also into the, in the gravel pack. And the gravel pack doesn't have any stress. It's just an open annular area. So we put the fusion coating on, which will bond without stress. And so that's, that's something that's kind of a new technology. It's a niche product. It's, it's something we're seeing a little bit of work on land as well, but it's, it was developed for offshore high-rate injectors. And I guess the other one is, I would say, is NRT, which is our, our non-radioactive traceable propens. So you can trace, you can use propent tracer. I guess I would say the workhorse of the industry for propent tracers is radioactive tracers. You add a little bit of it as an additive during your frack. Then you can see the frack height or the, you know, the propent where it was placed. But, you know, using radioactive materials is getting to be less and less desirable. And in some countries, you can't even use it. So we developed NRT, which is, we basically put a tag in every one of the grains, but it's not radioactive. It's just a rare earth oxide. But what the cool thing about it is, is if I run a neutron log past it, it, it absorbs neutrons. 
And so I can run a pre and a post frac neutron log and I can see essentially the same thing I can see with a radioactive tracer, but I don't have to deal with the radioactive part of it. And that's about as close as we can get to actually physically getting close to seeing these fractures and these actual formations, right? Like we, the industry's never gone down and dug up an entire wellbore to actually look at all this stuff in person, right? Where we have to do it through radioactive tools or cameras or scopes or some of those kind of things, right? Yeah, well, let, let's take a step back. I mean, the the NRT is telling you things within 18 inches of the wellbore. So, so whatever's going on in that area, I can tell you with those tracers. Unfortunately, the industry, it has very little technology available that actually shows you the far field detection. Having said that, we actually have a product, Quantum, that we are just we just developed that would help that does allow us using electromagnetic methods and does allow us to see propin in the far field. We've only done it on land so far, so it's not really an offshore application, but it's starting to give us glimpses of, of where the propin is located, you know, hundreds of feet away from the wellbore. The other thing though, I just want to make sure the other thing that the industry is doing is there are people now who are putting together test sites where they frack a well and then they actually drill a well next door to it or in the area and they try to drill through that profit pack. And several companies have done that now, one in West Texas, I guess there's a couple in West Texas, one in South Texas where they're, you know, you're getting at least a glimpse wherever that well was drilled kind of helps you think about whether it fits your metal model or the model that you run with your, your frack software. But yeah, that's, that's, you know, what, I, what I find is that propin detection and location of propin is really a multi-diagnostic operation. You, you know, there's probably not one technology that, that is going to answer the question. You kind of got a couple, several of them, even our quantum. Um, I think it's important to have another look, maybe the near well bore along with that, or maybe even some microseismic or something to kind of help. Oh, I don't know. You get more and more information and then you have to, it, it helps you constrain your frac models to maybe help giving you an idea of where things are located. But there's a lot of interesting things going on. I mean, prop and location has been the biggest question we've had for the last 10 or 15 years. And it's getting even more now with the unconventionals. Yeah, that's that's got to be difficult. I mean, from an, from an engineering standpoint, to never really be able to put your hands on it, right? Like the best it is, is models and systems that, it, you know, designed and built around it. I mean, decades of of knowledge and, and information of actually seeing what the production does, but I'd have a hard time like not putting my hands on it. Like I can't go actually look at what it's, what it's done down there. Well, it's, it's interesting too, because it's, I've always said, it's kind of the beauty of our industry. Nobody can ever prove you wrong because no one's ever been down there, <laughs> but you know, that that's also why it's something I think for an outsider, I think that's something they struggle with because, you know, there's degrees of, of certainty and, and, you know, most people want to be able to just say, well, what is it? And what is, it's two plus two, that equals four, right? And it's like, yeah, but, you know, we're, it, it, think of it as space exploration. I mean, we, we're, we, we, well, the way I guess we have cameras and different things out there, but there's, we, you know, we've never been past the moon. And, and so you're, you're having to infer some things. And, you know, we have to infer everything we have down the pole by measurements. And that's, it's also kind of the beauty of our industry. So unfortunately, there, it also means, and, and you know, hydraulic fracturing is no different. There are some things you, you hear people say many times, well, I believe, you know, that, that's kind of weird to have you say, I believe this thing. I believe that they're discrete fracture networks or no, I believe they're planar features. And I believe and it's like, it's, it's almost like you're talking about a religion here, but it's because we don't have 
we don't have the data. We don't, we've never been down there. Yeah. Now that you put it that way, it, it is an interesting piece in science. Yeah. Cause like you said, like science is kind of always generally based in facts and tangible evidence of a test or a theory. And, and you take those results and you apply it forward and, but space. Yeah. It's not to say we don't use physics. I mean, cause everything we do is we try yeah. to base in physics and engineering principles, but in the end you still, you have observations and, you know, I, I always say, I, I, I would love to see in five or 10 years, what we, what we then know about what these fracks look like in our unconventionals, because I'm not so sure we know right now. Yeah. But, but you know, that's see, that's to me, that's the beauty of the next generation of people coming in the industry. That's what I try to tell people. Hey, you know, you're getting into some things in the ground floor here. You, know, you may think that we're mature when, but when, when it comes to unconventional, we're not. And you're going to be discovering all kinds of cool things. You have the data available that we didn't have then. And, and then, you know, go offshore. Gosh, drilling in 10,000 feet of water, doing all this work below the mud line at 20 and 30,000 feet. That's, you know, a lot of people liken that to putting a man on the moon, but it's pretty exciting. It is. It is very exciting. It's it's very interesting too. Just so much going on that I'm I'm in the industry and I had no idea about so much, so many other facets of of what we do in oil and gas and and all the different production scenarios and just everything going on. I it, I learn something every single day. Yeah, certainly. This will be like the fourth plug for this movie. But if you've just talking like offshore being another world, if you've ever watched the movie. Last Breath on Netflix. It's a it's kind of a heavy movie, but it's about these deep sea divers, and they're working on some oil and gas production equipment down you know down on the seafloor. And it looks like another world. Yeah, it's just dark and black. And oh, I never heard of that. I'm gonna have to look that up. That sounds pretty cool. It's a heavy movie, but you know it is kind of tragic. It it is interesting just to see uh, again so many parts of this industry that even if you've been in here. 10, 20 years, you might not even know what's going on in some other portion of the world, some other part of the industry somewhere. Yep. With Carbo, I know you guys do lots of other stuff. Do you guys have any role just outside of oil and gas industry? Do you have? Yeah, we do. You know, we're, we're a couple of things. You know, we've been in an environmental side of things for quite some time. Asset Guard, which is our, our guard technology where we use polyurea coating to lay out to tank bases you know, holding ponds, uh, the, the, the base at a, at a say, a, a tank battery instead of dirt berms or the H, you know, the plastic, the black plastic. Uh, so that's 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 a pretty big thing we picked up several years ago. Starting to get more and more interesting. We're we're actually starting to take that. That's oil industry, but we're actually starting to take that out of the industry because there's other industry that use tanks and have you know have needs for impermeable flooring and things like that. You know, the other thing, too, is we've, you know, our propens, it's not propen in this case, but we use it in casting media. So you think of casting of engine parts, aluminum casting, things like that, grinding media. We've, we've, we've been involved in those industries for several years, and we are continuing to grow that. The big problem in that industry is that a lot of, a lot of those molds are used, are used standard sand. And, you know, with all the silicosis and all the issues now in the, in the industry, both theirs and ours, with uh, sand silicosis, a lot of people are having to either revamp their entire plants with air handling or switch to ceramic. So we're seeing a lot there. And then the other one is just our plants themselves. We do a lot of contract manufacturing. Well, you know, our plants will, you know, they're good at making pellets, 
They're good at firing those pellets. They're good at grinding in the powder, things like that. And so we do a lot of third-party toll manufacturing where we might have, say, a fertilizer company brings us raw material and they want us to turn into pellets for them or just a whole host of other things like that. So we're, we're kind of branching out, trying to help our company weather the ups and downs of the industry, of the oil industry. And, and you know, like our CEO likes to say, our plants don't know whether it's an oil and gas product or it's an industrial product. They just know that they want to make product. So yeah, so we've got a, a few different things. Yeah, I pulled up I pulled up your site real quick. I spent quite a bit of time on here beforehand, but I switched over to the environmental section and yeah, the tank guard, I've pulled a lot of oil out of a lot of tank batteries with your tank tank guards yeah. there throughout different places. It's pretty big. I mean, you know, we what the other cool thing is we've kind of that that also has been kind of our flagship for our direct uh, Carbo Direct, which is our online ordering. So, you know, people can just go online and, you know, everybody likes to order stuff from Amazon and everything now. So you can yeah. order Mobile Guard and, you know, all these tank guards and all that right off off the website. The Carbo Direct, you probably saw that there. And we do a lot of sales that way. And, you know, we're slowly trying to add things to that. We've added a little bit of our industrial products. I know we'd love to get to the you know, oil and gas side. It might be a little harder to do because it's a technology sale, but you know, we, we're still working to try to bring that into the play as well. This might be a very basic question, but you know, anybody that spent any time in the oil field on land has driven past a sand truck or seen a bunch of sand trucks or dealt with that whole logistics portion of the industry on just moving that material site to site. I know that's going to come on a ship out to these drilling rigs, but you know, is this just all bulk, big bulk transfers between you know, kind of like a tanker barge, a tanker ship offshore? Is this do you move a lot of this in bags? You know, what's this? What's the typical volume that would have to be moved for a well, just in propens? Offshore or onshore? Offshore. So offshore, offshore. I'm going to say it's anywhere. Well, anywhere from probably. 30 or 50,000 pounds. I mean, those would be small jobs. Maybe they're just gravel packs where you're not even fracking. They're just mm-hmm. putting it in the gravel pack. Frack packs, I'll say conventional frack packs where you're not putting in huge amounts of profit, probably on the order of two to 500,000 pounds, maybe eight or 900,000. And then you, some of the really deep stuff where they're trying to actually stimulate, you know, the lower tertiary, you're probably putting about 3 million pounds or so, maybe plus or minus in those wells, in multiple zones. So in each case, we're going to ship that product from our plant to the port, usually a Fushan, in trucks. So those are 50,000, roughly 50,000 pound trucks loads. If it has scale guard in it, you know, we've already mixed in the scale guard at the plant, so it comes out, everything's ready to go. And then it's basically blown onto the frack boat. So whatever service companies frack and they have a frack boat, those frack boats are going to hold, it depends on the frack boat, there's several sizes, but you know the largest one I think holds about three to three and a half million pounds. And in fact, we have some work coming up where we're going to probably put almost five million pounds in a well and we're, they're going to use two frack boats out there, probably do a, a probably, trans, I don't know, they're still debating whether they're going to transfer to sea or come back to port, but at any rate, that's all Huge bulk. There's no typically any bags out there. They they would prefer not to deal in bags and everything. They want to just move it around hydraulically. So I would have assumed that. I just again, my, I ha, I try to draw perspectives from my my history on land, and we see those now. You see those sandboxes and different 
just different methods of moving all this volume around. Well, you know, that's logistics has become a gigantic part of the whole system now. Because in many cases, you know, if you're moving sand around, you know, the movement itself, the logistics part of it is as is expensive as as the sand itself. So, you know, whether you have logistics, last mile, sandboxes, you know, all this, most of this is, is finding ways to be as efficient as possible and moving product around. You know, obviously we, we try to move things from place to place by rail if you can. That's, you know, 200 plus thousand pounds that way. But there's still a lot of things that are moved in, in bags, 3,000 pound bags, particularly if you have to move it overseas. That's typically the easiest and the best way to move it overseas is, is to bag it up. So it really just... You know, then you got to store it somewhere. So you store it in silos or you store it in bags in a warehouse. And believe me, 3 million pounds of product in bags is a lot of bags. That's a lot of bags, yeah. And I'm thinking like the big forklift bags, you know, like the big... Uh, super sacks. Super sacks, yeah, super sacks. So that is a tremendous amount of information about propens and just different sections of the industry. I mean, I know I've learned a tremendous amount. It's, it's really helped me understand even just a tiny bit more about all the different things going on. Anything else, you know, specifically maybe offshore related that that you'd want to touch on or, or that stands out to you? No, you know, it's just interesting, the dynamic between offshore and onshore. And again, when I think of onshore, I'm thinking about unconventionals because that's 95% of what at least we're doing in North America. Obviously, you know, the international arena is is probably more like an offshore market in that it's still, you know, needing its conventional wells. But, but you know, offshore is... You know, it's it's going through its changes with trying to reduce costs and trying to, you know, they're trying to break even at lower oil prices to because there's a huge resource offshore, um, a tremendous resource, particularly as we've gone and we have the ability to go to deeper and deeper water. I mean, we're discovering huge amounts of resource out there. And so, you know, that takes more money. It takes you want, but, but by the same token, it needs more productivity. So in many cases, that means hydraulically fracturing the well. So it means that, again, in an offshore environment, especially when we go into these frontier plays, you need to have products that are going to withstand the, the harsh conditions. And, and so that's, that's kind of why we've tried to push our way and, you know, to advance our technologies is to try to be a part of that. I was just at a presentation last week where they were talking about FIDs that increased by, you know, tripled or quadrupled since three or four years ago. So in the Gulf of Mexico. So that means it seems like work is picking up. I know a lot of people are starting to get more active out, more job, more, uh, more projects are being sanctioned. So that's exciting. But I mean, offshore is a pretty cool environment. It's uh, especially for an engineer, I think, because we're really doing some serious engineering offshore. Sometimes I'm not sure we're doing much engineering in our unconventionals, but we certainly are. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's something too. Uh, the offshore sector, sheer size of the projects, the lifespan, how much goes into just the first time you start producing that that location. I mean, you've probably put years into into getting that up to where it is. So. I mean, if if things are picking up now, that's that's real, that's real great to see and hear, and optimistic and positive for the industry going forward. Uh, hopefully, that keeps you guys on your toes and looking for the next step. Oh yeah, you you bet, Terry. Thank you very much for all your time. Thank you for everything you've offered up. It's been a tremendous amount of information. Really enjoyed speaking with you. I appreciate it, Andy. This has been fun. I always enjoy talking talking industry with people. So I appreciate you reaching out to me. You're welcome. Everybody, thank you for listening. 
Greatly appreciate your time. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment, leave a few comments or leave a comment and a review online and leave an honest review, right? I want to hear the good, the bad. Calm seas never made a skilled sailor. It's something that stood out to me looking into the show. So I want to hear the good, the bad. Help me get better. Help the show get better. It's the absolute best way to support the show as well. And maybe in the future on another episode, I might read your comments on air. Thank you again. And all right, everybody, have a good week. We'll see you on the next one. And now for announcements. Hey, everyone. Alex here with the events on deck for November. First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended, and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oilfield Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring Day 2 of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day two has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors, as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Top Coder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.